0: Praise God. Morning, church. Um, before we before we get started here, <coughs> there's only so much that we can cover in 30, 40 minutes this morning. And so uh, I have read through ch- chapter 8, I've gone through this vision, and I have pulled out what I, th- I believe is uh, are things that stood out, uh, things that I believe God wants to communicate this morning. But if there are things that I don't cover... Uh, I don't want you to think that I'm skirting any tough topics uh, or any difficult parts of the vision. If you have questions about the vision and and you want to ask me after the service, I'll be more than glad to talk to you about them. We can't discuss everything here today. This vision covers three to four hundred years of history, and there is just not enough time to cover it all. Okay, so I will start there. And I'm going to add this second point before we pray. And that is that if you read in this vision, if you want to open your Bible here in chapter eight, um there is an angel who is sent to help Daniel understand this vision. Daniel needs help understanding this vision, interpreting this vision. Um, we don't have angels to come and interpret the Word of God for us, but we have something that has been given to us, the Holy Spirit that will help us this morning, guide us through the Word of God. On this side of the cross, the Holy Spirit has been given to us so that when we come to the Word of God and we face tough and difficult passages, we can make sense of it and apply it and be transformed by it. Okay? We have the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you because we are your people You have called us into your family. You're a good God. And like Anna said, you win in the end. And so we are at peace knowing that you are our God, that you are sovereign, that you're overseeing every event in history, that there is nothing that thwarts your plans. There is nothing that jeopardizes your agenda. You are God. You are sovereign in control all the time. You are better, Father, than any captain at sea because you know the waters. You know the storms. You can't anticipate everything that happens, Lord Jesus. You control the winds and the storms. You are God. You are sovereign. And we thank you this morning. Amen. 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 Chapter 8. As you read through the Bible you will pick up very quickly that there is conflict between good and evil. If you open up Genesis right at the beginning, you get a sense very early that something isn't right. There's something wrong. God creates something beautiful, and the serpent comes in opposition, and he corrupts it. And so Satan hates God. Satan hates creation. And you pick up on that pretty early in Scripture. But sin also causes creation to turn on itself. Sin now causes us to war with each other. Sin puts us in conflict with God. And in Daniel, the whole book, but especially here in chapter 8, we're reminded of this conflict. It's persistent. It's endemic. It doesn't go away. It carries over from kingdom to kingdom. Right, We saw this back in chapter 2 when Nebuchadnezzar has his dream. We see an image made out of different material, and it represents four kingdoms. And then they all get tossed down. No matter who's in power or who's in charge, there always has been and always will be conflict in the world. And if there's someone who gets it, it's Daniel. If you remember in chapter 1, Daniel is taken from his home in Jerusalem as a young boy. And the city is invaded. It's attacked. Uh, uh, He's taken captive into a foreign land. The the, the walls of Jerusalem, uh, the the city is is, uh, besieged. And his friends are taken to a a foreign land. uh, His friends are put in a furnace. He's put in, in a den of lions. And he sees his boss, eventually the Babylonian Empire, gets overthrown and replaced by another boss, the Persian Empire. So Daniel experiences some pretty severe circumstances, some pretty severe situations. He gets conflict. He's seen it. He's lived it. And now in chapter 8, God's going to give him a vision, again, of kingdoms rising and falling. And But what's disturbing about this vision is that it warns of a particular evil that's coming in the future that's directed at God's people. The vision of chapter 8 listen carefully, is going to be an encouragement to the Hebrew people. They're going to need this to get through this period of evil. They're going to need this chapter. They're going to need this chapter 8. Because shortly after Daniel, there's going to be no more prophets. There's going to be no one to deliver God's word. It will be a period of silence. And God will stop communicating through prophets, So uh, the way he has through most of Israel's history. There's going to be no Moses. There's going to be no Samuel, no Isaiah, no Jeremiah. And after 400 years, or and for 400 years until Jesus comes, all God's people have is what's already been written. So this text is important for the Hebrew people as they're going through persecution. When Persia invades Babylon, God's people are meant to remember That God knew it would happen. He prophesied this. When Greece takes over Persia, God's people are meant to remember that it was prophesied. God knew that this would happen. And when the little horn rises up, this evil character who will persecute God's people, they are to remember that God knew that it would happen, that God warned them of this, so that they don't feel abandoned by God. God writes, God gives Chapter 8, he gives this vision so that the Israel people, the Hebrew people, don't feel abandoned by God. God wants them to know, I anticipated this, and I wrote this so you know that I am still your God, and I still care for you. This chapter is an encouragement for them for the time of the end. Now, we read in chapter 8 of the time of the end and this period of 2,300 uh, mornings and evenings. (coughs) And uh, the end in the Old Testament, when we read that word, it refers to the conclusion of the problem at hand. So here, it refers to the latter time of the indignation. And what that means, it's just the latter days of uh, the time of Antiochus, who is this evil character that we're going to read about, this little horn that rises up, this unsuspecting character who persecutes God's people. And so the time of the end here in chapter 8, the time of indignation, the latter days, when you read that, it's, it's this period of Antiochus' reign that, is, uh, that the Israel people will be persecuted, persecuted throughout. And God assures Daniel that the handing over of God's people is temporary. It's so temporary that it's measured in days. It says 2,300 mornings and evenings. If you remember last week, William shared in chapter 7, the time there is time and times and time and a half and a half a time. Here, it's vague and obscure in chapter 7, but here it's specific and measured in days, meaning this is a defined period of time that God's people will be persecuted. And that in itself is meant to be an encouragement for them. And if you're curious about the 2,300 days, um, the morning, mornings and evenings, it can be a period of about six years or three years, depending on how you read that verse. The important thing is that they're both accurate, okay? They both depict very significant periods of Antiochus' reign. Uh, so six years would represent about the, the total time that Antiochus was allowed to blaspheme and uh, that he was persecuting the church in three years. Is, is It is also correct because it represents the time that Antiochus set up Zeus in the, the, the Hebrew temple until the time that the temple was then again rededicated. So let's not get, I don't want to get too lost in the 2,300 mornings and evenings. Depending on how you read it, it could mean six years or three years about that time. But they're both accurate. They're both correct. And if you focus too much on trying to interpret those 2,300 days, you miss the point. Chapter 8 is not about times and dates. The goal of the vision is to prepare God's people to bear patiently the tribulation, the tribulation that they'll face. That's the point of chapter 8, and we can't lose sight of that. And Daniel is told to seal up this vision. Because it refers to a distant time. Now, it's got to be sealed, not because it's going to be kept secret, not because um, uh, uh, God doesn't want people to know about it. It's got to be sealed up because it's got to be kept safe so that it's available when people need it in about 300 years. And let's stop for a second because this is quite incredible. Think... Think about this. God has done the same thing for us in the 21st century. He has not left us alone. He has given us the Holy Spirit to understand his word. He has preserved his word for us to encourage us so that we can face whatever trial and whatever adversity is thrown our way. God's word is enough for us to stand firm should any antichrist rise and oppose God. This word is enough. It's been preserved For us so that we know that God cares for us and has not abandoned us. If you want a demonstration of God's love, it's right here. It's God's word that's been preserved for us. The same way chapter 8 was preserved for the Hebrew people in the second century BC. We can stand firm. We can be courageous. We can take heart like James tells us to do in chapter 5. Because we know that through his word, that God is in control and cares for us. Now, in this chapter, in chapter 8, and William was joking when he said that I had some really serious graphics on the screen. I don't. (laughs) You're not missing anything. And if you're at home, you can corroborate. Um, If you have your Bible, though, it's going to be helpful. It's going to be very helpful. Um, In this chapter, we're going to zoom into two kingdoms. I spoke about chapter two in Nebuchadnezzar. There were four kingdoms that that image represented. And if you remember, it's Babylon, it's Persia, it's Greece, and it's Rome. And in chapter eight, we're going to zoom in on two of those kingdoms, the middle two. We're going to zoom in on Persia, and we're going to zoom in on Greece. That's the context for this vision. It's going to cover the period of those two kingdoms, Persia and Greece. And the vision is given while the Babylonians are in power. And so just to help uh, situate you, if you go to verse 1, it says this. It says, in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel. So the, f- the third year of the reign. So uh, chapter 7 was in the first year. Chapter 8 is in the third year. And so just to, I- I'm like, I read the Bible chronologically every year because <clears throat> that's helpful f- for me to understand the word of God. And so if you're like that, chapter 8 comes before chapter 5. Okay. King Belshazzar is still Daniel's boss at this point. So Daniel has a vision about his boss ge- being overthrown, okay? Or this vision is, <clears throat> takes place after his boss is overthrown, okay? The vision starts with Daniel and Susa. Again, here in chapter, uh, in chapter 2, it starts with Daniel and Susa. He's not actually in Susa. He, the vision takes him there. And Susa is important because Susa is the administrative capital of the kingdom that's going to come after Babylon. Susa is the Washington, D.C., or the Ottawa, of Persia. And so it's relevant to the vision. Daniel is taken to the capital of the kingdom that's going to come next. In this vision, he's taken to the capital of his next employer. That's Susa. And when he's there, verse 3, I raised my eyes and I saw and behold a ram standing on the bank of the canal. The ram represents the kingdom, the joint kingdom of Media and Persia. It's a joint kingdom. That's why the ram has two horns. One is bigger than the other. And what ends up happening is Persia ends up absorbing media. It's the more powerful of the two. And so it ends up absorbing um, media. And that's why when we, you know, when we speak of that kingdom, we usually just shorten it to the kingdom of Persia. We don't always say media in Persia. It's because Persia takes over. And we see this ram charging in different directions, doing as he pleases. History tells us, just like the text predicts, that Persia spreads in the west to Babylon and Syria and into Asia Minor, which is uh, modern-day Turkey. It spreads into the north, into the area around Armenia, and it spreads into the south, into Africa. We know that Persia conquers that territory. It's a powerful kingdom, and the Word of God says that it does what it wants. Now, remember, Daniel is seeing this. We're reading text, but Daniel is seeing this. And so you have to try and visualize this because it's a violent image. You don't just get it from reading the text. You really have to picture it. It's violent. We're meant to see the force of this kingdom. It charges and does whatever it wants. It makes the next part of the vision more shocking Because Daniel sees a male goat and it comes, it charges so fast at the ram that his feet don't touch the ground. And the same ram that we saw charging a second ago has no power now to fight or defend itself against this goat. It gets trampled on, it gets mangled, and there's no one to help. There's no one to rescue the ram. It is a violent image. No kingdom is safe. God reminds his people in chapter 8 as you read this of the fragility of human empires and human kingdoms. This is a theme in Daniel. We've repeated this and we've, we've sang about this now for several weeks. Kingdoms are strong for a season and they collapse. Superpowers are not superpowers forever. The goat does to the ram what the ram did to so many others. Kingdoms rise and fall. Now we move on to verse 5 here. Again, if you have your Bibles, please follow along. Make sure that I'm saying the right stuff. The goat that attacks the ram has one horn. Kind of looks like a unicorn. This great horn represents Alexander the Great. One of the greatest military minds in history and if i had my slides up i have the 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 vision oh it's up good you have the vision on one side you've got the interpretation on the other um and so (coughs) um you can see i'm not making this up Uh, it refers to the king of greece (coughs) And Alexander conquered most of the known world at his time uh, during his time he he conquered from Greece all the way to India, and he did it quickly. He did it fast he conquers so much in so little time that's why the text says that the goat comes and his feet don 't even touch the ground. Alexander is fast he conquers fast his army works fast they exploit the enemy by working fast and so he conquers so much in so little time and for all his might and all the reverence that he gets from from modern day historians and from us looking back um, he is relegated to a footnote in this chapter we don't spend a lot of time on alexander he's not the central character here the vision is going to move on pretty quickly from alexander the great that reminds us that this book, this vision, chapter 8, is not primarily a historical work, it's a theological work. God is going to emphasize what he wants to emphasize in the text, not who we think is important, but who God thinks is important. Theologically, the most important historical event here is not Alexander, it's the little horn. And so that's where the bulk of the chapter is going to focus on. move on quickly from alexander the horn falls it's it's replaced by four (coughs) it's replaced by four other horns alexander dies young he dies i think at 32 and when he dies he doesn't have an heir to leave his great kingdom to and so his four generals take over so the kingdom is divided up in four and i (coughs) and i don't remember the name of the four I think it's Cassander, Lysimachus, Seleucid, and Ptolemy. I think those are the four generals that take over. Those are the four. Those are the four little horns that we read about here. None of them is as mighty as Alexander. Verse 22 tells us that. And then from the four, from one of them, from the Seleucid Empire, comes this little horn, and his name is Antiochus IV., And he's appropriately called little here because nobody suspected that he would take over the kingdom. He was pretty insignificant. He was held hostage for a little while. Um, There was nothing special about him. He wasn't first in line for the throne. Again, nobody really thought that he would be ruler. But he was sneaky. He was clever. When Anna was reading, you guys heard he was cunning, he was clever. <clears throat> Depending on your version of the Bible, some of your versions will say that he understood riddles. He's a, he's a crafty individual and he worms his way into power. And one thing to know about this character Antiochus is that he's a big fan of Greek culture. When he's held hostage, he falls in love with Greek culture. He really loves it. And so when he takes over, when he, when he gets into a position of power, he's going to abuse it and he's going to force his whole empire. He's going to force the Greek culture. He's going to Hellenize his whole kingdom. He's going to do it by force. In chapter 1, we saw Babylon indoctrinating young people and doing it in a subtle way. Here, we see it done by force. He's going to force people to abandon their faith, abandon their religion, and uh, instead adopt his pagan religion. They can do that or they can die. Those are the choices that Antiochus sets before his kingdom and his citizens. And many Jews are going to resist that. Antiochus is not going to put up with it. And so he's going to attack Jerusalem. He's going to tear down its walls. He's going to set it on fire and he's going to plunder it. He's going to massacre the Jews. And anyone that's left alive, he's going to order them to stop the circumcision. He's going to order them to stop keeping the Sabbath. He's going to order them to stop keeping the Passover and Pentecost and every single Jewish festival. They're not allowed to celebrate anymore. He orders that every copy of the Hebrew scripture be burned. Verse 12, if you read it, it says that he throws truth down to the ground. Quite literally, he does that. He burns every copy of God's word that he can. If you were found with the Torah, if you were found with a child that was circumcised, you and your family were put to death. And one account says that they would hang the baby if he was circumcised. Antiochus was ruthless. He is going to ban temple worship. He's going to stop God's people from sacrificing at the temple, just like we read in verse 11. He's going to desecrate the temple. He's going to dedicate it to Zeus. He's going to put Zeus's statue in it. He's going to enter the Holy of Holies and he's going to sacrifice an unclean animal. He's going to sacrifice a pig on the altar. This is an abomination to Jews. This is the transgression. This is the abomination that makes them desolate. So when you read that, that's what it means. It's an abomination to put an unclean animal on the altar, to worship to another god in God's temple. This is the transgression that causes desolation. This is what Jesus refers to when he speaks about it in the Gospels. There is an attempt by Antiochus to eradicate every part of Israel's worship and life. Evil is directed at this glorious land. Evil is directed at God's people here. And we get a sense from verse, from verse 10 that by attacking God's land, the temple, the people, he's making war with God himself and the heavenly beings. In fact, the text says that Antiochus believes himself so great that he sets himself up as prince of princes, Of princes, he calls himself God. He considers himself God. If you Google him, if you search him online, the name that comes up for Antiochus IV is Antiochus Antiochus Epiphanes. That's the name that he gives himself. Epiphanes means uh, revealed or made manifest. What he believes is that he is God made manifest. Theos Antiochus Epiphanes, God revealed. He believes himself to be the incarnation of God. That's the name he puts on his coins. It reeks of arrogance and pride. And as we read about Antiochus' <clears throat> epiphanies, there's a caution for us here. <clears throat> and I don't want to digress from the main point of the text, but it's hard for me to read this and not think about ourselves here. Because Antiochus' sin shows us our potential for sin too. Antiochus had a distorted view of himself. But sin does this with all of us. Sin is self-centered. Sin is self-glorifying. It expresses itself in arrogance. It gives us a distorted view of our own worth and our own value, of our own abilities, of our own importance. Sin puts us at the center of every story. Sin never encourages us towards God. Sin never encourages us to put God at the center. We may not be the, the murderous people that Antiochus was, but have you ever been so angry that you wanted to damage or destroy somebody? A friend, a coworker, a politician. Am I the only one? Gosh. <clears throat> How dare they do that to me? How how dare they forget about me? How dare they slight me? How dare they take away my freedom? We have a distorted view of our own importance. That exaggerates every offense against us. When we elevate ourselves so high, every offense is monumental. We see this in culture. We have made the individual so powerful that every offense is monumental. When someone offends us, we feel as though they're offending God himself. It leads us to unrighteous anger. And anger is not murder, that's not what I'm saying, but there is a connection that Jesus makes in Matthew 5. In the same section that he connects lust with adultery, he connects anger with murder. So we need to sober up and see the potential of our sin. And combat it with a godly perspective of ourselves. And there is no better way to do that than to look at the cross. Because when you look at Jesus, when we are flying high with a tendency towards self, uh, self-aggrandizement, towards thinking of ourselves so great, we look to Jesus who was God, who was made flesh, who was made weak, who was made incarnate, who endured human torture and death. We see in Jesus ultimate humility. Humility. What we did to Jesus was infinitely bad. That was the greatest offense we could have committed. And yet Jesus forgives us and dies for us to reconcile us. And when we are low and we indulge in self-centeredness in a different way, when we indulge in self-pity, which is another way to be self-consumed and self-absorbed, When we put ourselves at the center of the story in a different way, now not to be great, but to indulge in self-pity, we look again to the cross. And we are filled with hope to see our Lord Jesus in excruciating pain because of his great love for us. And we are reminded of our true identity and our hope. God's people should never be too high or too low. We should have the right perspective of ourselves that is regulated by Scripture. You want to look at verse 12. <clears throat> it says, And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, it will act and prosper. We read that the Israelites are given over because of transgression. <clears throat> it makes a lot of sense to read that and understand it as Israel's transgression towards God. Because of their transgression, towards God, they are now permitted to endure this time of suffering. Next week in chapter 9, Daniel is going to confess Israel's sin. He's going to prayer, pray a prayer of repentance. He's going to confess that God's people have been wicked, that they've turned aside from God's commandment, commandments. He will pray for repentance. But we learn if you flip forward in your Bible a little bit and you go to the last prophet of the Old Testament to Malachi, we learn that God's people continue in their spiritual decline. Malachi tells us that Israel continues to fail to honor God. The priests fail to honor God. They offer defiled food on the altar. They offer blind, lame, and diseased animals as sacrifices. The people give God their worst stuff. They rob God. This is the context of the verse that says, bring your tithes to the storehouse that there may be food for my house. The context is that Israel has stopped doing this. They have brought the lame, the worst that they have, to make atonement with their God. So God allows the temple to be taken away from them. In Deuteronomy 28, God warns Israel that this would happen. This should not be news for the Hebrew people. If they abandon God, Deuteronomy twenty says, 28 says, and if they don't keep God's law, if they worship other gods, it says that God will cause them to perish. It says that God will allow their towns to be attacked, their city walls to come tumbling down. God says all the way back in Deuteronomy that if they break his covenant, and if you're new to the Bible, Deuteronomy was written way before Daniel. Way, way before Daniel. If you go all the way back to Deuteronomy, it says that if they break his covenant, he will permit extraordinary and lasting afflictions. That's verbatim. That is God's word from Deuteronomy. This is not news to the Hebrew people. The law that Israel is breaking is given to them so that they can atone for their sin and be right with God. And to break the law is to leave them defenseless against God's wrath. It is no joke to be under God's wrath. Sin is infinitely offensive to God and egregious to him. Israel has no mediator. They've given up on the law and they've given up on the commandments. There is nothing now stopping, preventing God's wrath. So they will bear the weight of his anger. Rightly so. And this applies to all of creation. Without reconciliation, creation remains at odds with God. If we can't atone for our sin and make things right with God, we remain at odds with the creator. It's either the law or the sacrificial system. It's either the law, the sacrificial system, or Jesus, rather. Those are our two options to make things right with God, and there's no other way. And we see that the law is too hard. We have the whole Old Testament showing us the law is too hard to keep. It's impossible to keep. The only real option, the viable option, the reasonable option, the realistic option is Jesus. Jesus is creation's only option. This is why we make so much of Jesus here. This is why we sing about Jesus and we talk about Jesus and everything we do and say revolves around the person of Jesus. It's because Jesus is the defense, is our defense against God's wrath. God himself provides a way for us to be acquitted of our guilt and our shame and our offense towards him. Jesus takes the penalty that should have been ours. All the sin of creation is laid on Jesus so that all who believe in him can be saved. Without Jesus, like I said, we continue to be at odds with God. We continuously remain in breach of our covenant. And we deserve the same handing over that the Hebrews experienced under Antiochus. That's why we call what we do on Sundays and what the message that we share with the world, good news. Because a way has been made out of this. There's a way out of condemnation, a way out of God's wrath. Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice. Jesus becomes the temple that we need that was torn down and built again in three days. Jesus is the temple that we go to now to meet with God. He is our defense Our safety, our covering, our shelter. It is Jesus for anyone and everyone who believes it to be true. I'm going to jump down now to verse 27 and see Daniel's reaction to this. To this vision. We read there in verse 27 that Daniel was overcome and lay sick for some days. Despite not totally understanding the vision which he admits to at the end of 27, he knows it's pointing to something bad. He knows that it points to time of severe persecution. That's why he gets sick. It makes him unwell. Even though this tribulation that, verse, that chapter 8 points to is a couple hundred years in the future, he can't just dispassionately connect, disconnect himself from it. He can't just say, it's not my problem. Just because he's not going to face it personally doesn't mean he doesn't care. He cares deeply, and it makes him unwell. The vision makes him unwell. What's going to happen to the Jewish people makes him unwell. Even though they've turned against God, he is still concerned for them. And like Daniel, our hearts should break when we read about God's judgment because we know that anyone who doesn't have Jesus as their defense has to answer to the judge who is righteous and will rightly condemn unrighteousness. It's easy for us to say, it's not my problem. It's easy for us Christians in the 21st century to shrink back into our Christian communities, into our churches and isolate ourselves from people. And to forget that there is a world of people who will appear in court one day before the ultimate judge without a defender, without a defense. And here's a disturbing observation that I have. That for so many Christians, it's actually easier and more enjoyable for them to condemn the world than it is to bring good news to it. I'm going to repeat that. For many Christians, it brings them more joy and more satisfaction to bring a message of condemnation to the world than it does to bring the good news to people. It is very easy to follow culture, to follow the news, to see the outcome of disobedience in people's lives, the consequences of sin unfold, and to look from a distance gleefully, When bad things happen and say, they deserved it. We are not meant to condemn the world. The law of God does that. We're called to bring good news to it. That's our job. We are meant to be sent with this message. In order to do that, we need a heart like Daniel's that aches for the lost. It's our job to tell the world that it's no longer under condemnation if it appeals to Christ as their Savior, as their defense, as their righteousness. It is our job to tell the world that nothing but the blood of Jesus can save them. We are to be invested in God's kingdom, and being invested in God's kingdom means that we care deeply about the lost. Here's another of (coughs) Daniel's responses. Again, in verse 27 in the second half, if you have your Bible, again, I'm going to encourage you. To read it, it says, Then I arose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. <clears throat> it says he's unwell for a time, but then he gets up and he goes about the king's business. Despite what he's feeling, despite how overwhelmed he is with the vision, he gets up and he goes about the king's business. I said it at the top of the sermon, but who's, who's the king during this time? It's Belshazzar. Chapter 5. Belshazzar and Belshazzar is a wicked king He is a foolish king and he runs a foolish and wicked government that's his boss and he gets up and he faithfully goes to serve his boss despite Belshazzar being incompetent and foolish and wicked Daniel continues to be a faithful citizen and civil servant and more importantly a faithful servant of God He gets up and he goes to work. And I imagine and I believe and we read that he's a good worker. He's set over his colleagues. He becomes a manager. He's called in to lead people. This vision doesn't drive Daniel into despair and into hiding. Instead, he continues to be useful. He continues to be useful to the king And he continues to be useful to the king of kings, to his Lord, to his God. He continues to be useful to the people that he leads. He returns to his job. He doesn't retreat from the world because evil days are coming. And it's no surprise if you flip back to Chapter 5, what does it say? It says, The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom the spirit of the holy gods, in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And king Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, the enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because he had an excellent spirit knowledge and understanding. Daniel makes an impression on the queen that she remembers him after all this time. He is a good worker. He gets up, he serves the king, he goes to work. What I find with Christians sometimes is that we separate our lives. We have Sunday and we have Monday to Saturday. There is a separation between the secular life and the spiritual life. There's a disconnect, there's a separation between our secular work and our spiritual work. Let me tell you, we're not supposed to compartmentalize our lives that way. We're not supposed to segment our lives into, into sever our lives in that way. We're not Christians on Sunday and employees on Monday. We are God's people every day. And so, We are to reflect that in every area of our lives. Christians should make for the best employees. Because we see as Christians the connection between our work in culture and the work that God is doing in the world. Do you understand that? Your work on Monday is connected to what God is doing in the world. It is relevant and valuable. When we do well in our jobs, when we are faithful at our jobs, God is glorified. I remember going with my dad to work. And if you heard me talk about my I, I think I shared my dad's testimony once here. Uh, my dad got saved. He was he really needed Jesus as we all do, but he was I remember my dad with two blocks of cement at our apartment building, I think it was on the 10th floor, and he was able to break the window to commit suicide. My mom had to hide all the knives in the house. Like it, was, it was pretty sketch time in our family. My dad came to Jesus. And when he did, his life turned around like nothing I've ever saw before. My dad drove a dump truck, and I would go to work with my dad. And after he got saved, he was on fire for Jesus. This was definitely his first love. His work life changed to the point where he got made fun of. He was the only truck driver who washed his truck and detailed it every single day. And he did it for the glory of God. And when he did it, it provided the opportunity when they made fun of him to tell people about the good news of Jesus Christ, believe it or not. And I was there. I saw it. I remember it. I remember driving with my, in my dad's dump truck, going and him washing the car every single day. It's annoying because you just want to go home. But for the glory of God, he washed his truck. The transformation in his life spilled over into every area of his life. Our secular lives, quote unquote, should converge with our spiritual lives. We're to be salt and light. The Bible says we're to be the aroma of Christ in the world. As we wait for Jesus, as we anticipate trial, as we anticipate tribulation, we should not become unproductive and useless. Regardless of what the future holds, be productive. This is why I didn't spend too much time on the timing and the days. It's not good use speculating. There are people who live in the past and they can't move on with their lives. Let me tell you, there are people who they get overwhelmed and overcome with what could happen in the future that they stop being productive. They become useless. They can't move on with their lives because of what they anticipate in the future. There is enough trouble today. Don't worry about the future is what the Bible says. The work you do is valuable. It's connected to what God is doing in the world. Wherever you are, whatever you do, do it faithfully, like Daniel did, despite this vision, despite seeing the tribulation that was coming in the future. He's not paralyzed, he's driven to action. Those who are transformed are also sent because we care passionately about the lost. Stand up and pray. Father, we thank you because you have called us into your, your family. Father, we thank you because You have forewarned us of trial and tribulation. Lord, we read today that the Hebrew people were forewarned of persecution. Lord, Scripture is filled with your message to us, warning us of persecution to come for us too. Lord Jesus, you tell your disciples that they would be hated, that they would be flogged in the synagogues, that they would be brought up to governors and to government. Lord, this should not be news to us. God, we know that if there's any certainty is that we will be persecuted for loving you, Jesus. Your word says that. But God, I pray, I pray that knowing that, knowing that your scripture has been written for our comfort and encouragement, that you've preserved it for our encouragement, Lord that we would not look to the future, that we would not anticipate trial or adversity and become unproductive and useless, Lord, but that we would be moved with compassion for the lost, that we would not look dispassionately at the world that is veering far from you, Lord, but that we would be moved with love towards them, that we would become productive, Lord Jesus, that knowing that trial and adversity would come, Lord, would not unmotivate us but steer us and move us towards the lost, Lord Jesus. We pray, God, that like Daniel, you would give us hearts that love people, Father. We pray, God, that we would allow your word to seep into every area of our lives. To our family life, to our work life, Lord Jesus. We pray, God, that you would not just be our Lord on Sunday. We pray and thank you.